Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's August 2022. It's been several months since we've discussed the COVID-19 pandemic, and today we're coming back to that topic with a focus on long-term care settings, such as nursing homes and assisted living communities. As of July 10th, 2022, more than 1.1 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 154,000 COVID-19 deaths among residents of U.S. long-term care facilities have been reported to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And while there are many aspects of this that we could explore today, we're going to talk about some of the factors that appear to have contributed to the disparities in COVID-19 burden and outcomes that have been observed among long-term care facilities. Specifically, we'll look at some data indicating that systemic inequities, including those of facility and community resources, have contributed to higher burdens of COVID-19 disease and death among facilities that provide care to larger proportions of economically disadvantaged individuals and individuals from racial and ethnic minority groups. I'm joined today by the authors of three papers that were published in this month's issue of Itchy and that provide some insight into these important issues. My guests today are Dr. Helena Temkin-Greener and Wen Han Guo, who are researchers from the Division of Health Policy and Outcomes Research in the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Dr. Rinwa mm-hmm. Dimyadi from the Center for Community Health and Prevention and the Rochester New York Emerging Infections Program, which are also at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And finally, Dr. Shelley McGill from the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. So Helena, a primary focus of your research throughout your career has been the quality of care and the determinants of healthcare quality in long-term care settings. So when the pandemic arrived, it seems as though you were really well poised to study the impact that it has had on the residents of these facilities and factors that might lead to a differential impact among facilities. Two of your many studies looking at this were published in this month's issue of Itchy, one focused on nursing homes and one that looked at assisted living communities. And Wenhan, I know you were also involved in the assisted living facility study. So before I ask you to tell us about your research, I think it might be helpful to those of us who aren't as familiar with these long-term care settings, if you could explain how these two types of facilities differ from one another. Sure. So both nursing homes and assisted living communities are long-term residential settings. They both provide room and board, and they typically serve older adults who have physical and cognitive impairments. But that's pretty much where the similarity between the two ends. Nursing homes, sometimes also referred to as skilled nursing facilities, provide a full array of medical and personal services to their residents. They are regulated at both state and federal levels, and care is paid largely by Medicare when stay is rehabilitative and by private funds when it's custodial or not rehabilitative. Assisted living communities provide largely supportive and some personal care. Rarely do they provide medical services, even though they do serve a very frail and disabled population. They are also not certified at the federal level. They are also regulated only at the state level which makes a big difference because it creates an enormous variation in what they really are. And they are paid almost entirely from out-of-pocket payment 
all the increasingly, and I think important, that will be important later on in our discussion, state Medicaid agencies do pay for personal care services for people who are dually eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. Great, thank you. And, and so before we talk about the details of these two studies, can you tell us a little bit more about what made you pursue this particular research? So we know from prior studies, both studies of others as well as our own, that disparities in quality of care exist in both nursing homes and in assisted living. There are many, many studies showing racial and ethnic disparities in nursing homes, both within facilities and across facilities. And in assisted living, disparities have largely been between residents who are dual versus the Medicare only. Majority of residents of assisted living are white. Our research on COVID in nursing homes in an assisted living have both found evidence of racial and ethnic, uh, as well as dual disparities. That's not the research that we are currently talking about, it's prior research. And the uh, studies in ITCHE, we wanted to uh, basically examine whether these disparities in nursing homes change over time as COVID continues to rage. And facilities with more racial ethnic minorities tend to be resource poor facilities. So COVID may have further exacerbated their resource availability in a number of different ways. Similarly, for assisted living, we were interested in resource availability because those communities also vary. And we wanted to see how availability of resources, both at the assisted level at their community location, the extent to which they, they are located in uh, socioeconomically poorer communities and at the state level may affect COVID experience in these communities. So for assisted living, we hypothesized that uh, communities with fewer resources for which we used proxies of higher proportion of minorities and duals, communities located in areas with higher deprivation index and in states with less stringent social distancing measures, experienced more COVID-19 cases. So kind of just to remind us that different states implemented different social distancing policies over time. Some were more stringent in terms of masking and social distancing and gathering, and some were much more relaxed. So that's what we were also looking at. And... Just to clarify, when you refer to dual, you're referring to individuals who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. Is that that's the definition for dual? Yes, that's correct. Great. And then can you tell me a little bit more about deprivation? I think you use the area deprivation index. For people who aren't familiar with that, can you just tell us a, a little bit about what that represents? So the area deprivation index or ADI is a ranking of uh, region-level social economic status. The ADI accounts for factors such as region-level income, education, employment rates, and housing quality. A lot of research used ADIs to examine variations in health delivery, especially for the most disadvantaged neighborhood groups. The ADI we used was developed at the census tract level, 
This ADI index is more specific to the population we are studying and may offer more insights into how neighborhood deprivation may impact health outcomes. Great, thanks. That's really helpful. So what did you find in these studies? So in the study, in the nursing home study, which focused only on one state, Connecticut, and that is because that was a state that consistently reported data on COVID as early as April of 2020. Other states kind of followed Connecticut. We tracked COVID data for a period of 10 weeks so through June and compared higher versus lower nursing homes that had higher versus lower proportion of racial and ethnic minorities. The minorities tended to have a, also a higher proportion of duals, so a higher proportion of minorities in nursing home also reflects resource availability. Basically, what we found is that nursing homes serving large proportion of minority residents tended to have more COVID cases and more COVID death during this 10-week study period. And these across-facility disparities persisted after we controlled for nursing home and county covariates, and they also increased over time. So the disparity exacerbated. In week 10, the COVID-19 COVID-19 incidence rate was 54% higher, and fatality rate was 17% higher in homes with high proportion of minorities compared to those with low proportion of minorities. So just to clarify, even when you controlled for the amount of COVID transmission in communities, you were still seeing these disparities within the facilities based on those other factors that you described. So for this sleeping study, we actually collected data, weekly COVID cases from state department websites And as of June 2020, 12 states were reporting such data. But due to data data quality concerns, we only included five states, which are Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Ohio, and South Carolina in our final study cohort. We examined the changes in cumulative COVID cases from June the 9th through August the 18th, 2020, Using prior data on assisted livings, we identified assisted living communities in these states and their Medicare beneficiary residents. So data area deprivation were obtained at the census tract level from Neighborhood Atlas Project, and the information on state-level policy stringency came from WalletHub.com website, which actually ranked the changing state policy stringency for all 50 states and the District of Columbia. This ranging is based on metrics such as uh, mask mandates, travel restrictions, school closures, and so on. Each metric was graded by an expert panel on a 100-point scale, with higher scores indicating fewer restrictions. The weighted average score of all 13 metrics of policy restrictions was calculated to produce this state ranking. We also controlled for county-level COVID cases based on the database produced by New York Times. The outcome of interest for our study was the cumulative number of COVID-19 cases in each assessed living of each week. We used the two-part zero-inflated models to study the association between the COVID-19 infection and the variables of interest. So what we found was that the assisted livings with a higher proportion of minority duals were more likely to have COVID-19 outbreaks within their communities. 
We also found out that while states with more stringent social distancing policies were not associated with the likelihood of COVID-19 outbreaks, which is having at least one case within their community. And the more stringent state restrictions, as well as lower neighborhood deterioration, were associated with fewer cases in assist livings in which there was a COVID-19 outbreak. Great. Thanks for those summaries of those two articles. Are there any important limitations we should know about when we think about those two studies? So for, for the nursing home study, as I mentioned, it only includes Connecticut. So it's one state. It's a good number of nursing homes, but it's still one state. And that's because, as I mentioned before, that it's the only state for which early data were available. But it certainly would be worth repeating this with a longer period because, you know, at the time we might have been thinking that COVID was here just for a few weeks. Well, now we know better. And also uh, the ability to adjust for nursing home and county covariates was somewhat limited. And so to the extent some of these unmeasured factors may have mediated the across-facility disparities in some way that is hard to know. For the assisted living study, it's a similar limitation of the time period. We only examined a period from June 9th to August 18th. Again, we clearly missed the crest of the fall of 2020 COVID that swept through more states. So that would be good to repeat that study just for that purpose. And we could not account for COVID testing and or positivity among caregivers in assisted living. That data is just not available. So in assisted living where more people were testing positive or not testing or having COVID, that could have had an impact. Great, thanks. And so kind of taking these two studies together, what are some potential explanations for these findings that were a little bit different in terms of how you looked at them, but the findings were similar, I think, in terms of what some of those risk factors were. But what potential explanations do we have for those findings? I think, you know, we've known for a long time that nursing homes that have a higher proportion of minorities are poorer quality nursing homes. They have fewer staff. They have lower rates of mix of skilled staff to non-skilled staff, so like RNs to uh, certified nursing assistants. All of those things matter. They matter in the early identification, in the early treatment, how many hands are on board. These nursing homes also tend to have, you know, two people to a room, not they can't they can't quarantine people. They typically, from other studies, we know that they don't have good infection control. So all of that added together, there were probably also nursing homes that had less access initially to PPE. They might not have been affiliated with big hospitals that could have provided that. They couldn't get it on their own. So a, a host of, of factors. For assisted living, I think, you know, what we are finding is more sort of an effect of duals. And we also know that assisted livings are not all the same and that duals tend to be in assisted living. They are poorer. They don't have the resources. They are in 
underprivileged areas. We don't really know about staffing. We can only speculate, but there's, there's just no data, but we can speculate that they are probably not in communities that have any medical resources. So that's a speculation. So I'm going to transition. I want to come back to those issues in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk to Rinwa and Shelley. Thanks again to both of you for being here today. So the paper that you and your colleagues at the CDC's Emerging Infections Program published in this month's issue describes demographic characteristics and healthcare and community-related exposures and activities reported by healthcare personnel in the U.S. who were diagnosed with COVID-19 during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about that study and what the purpose of that research was? Thanks for the opportunity. So I'll say a little bit first about the Emerging Infections Program, um, which may be a network that not everyone is familiar with. The EIP, as we call it, has been around for a number of years, since 1995. It's a network of 10 state health departments and academic and other partners that work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention through a cooperative agreement. The EIP sites have been conducting surveillance and special studies for many years for many pathogens of public health concern, and that includes a variety of bacterial pathogens, um, respiratory pathogens, foodborne pathogens, and more recently, healthcare-associated and antimicrobial-resistant pathogens. And EIP is kind of divided up into a number of different major activities. One of those is known as the Healthcare Associated Infections Community Interface Activity, which we abbreviate HAIC. And the EIP HAIC conducts surveillance and performs special projects on healthcare associated infections, um, antimicrobial resistant pathogens, and other patient safety related events. And the staff in the EIP sites are very accustomed to partnering with healthcare facilities in their jurisdictions to do a variety of different projects. And that was really critical to the project that's described in our paper. And so with this particular effort, we were interested in initiating surveillance for SARS-CoV-2 infections in healthcare personnel early in the pandemic. And the reason for that was at least in part to describe and compare the characteristics of healthcare workers who had SARS-CoV-2 infection working in different clinical settings including their clinical activities and their use of personal protective equipment or PPE. And we wanted to know whether there were differences in factors among personnel working specifically in hospitals versus nursing homes that might affect the risk of infection. We knew it would be difficult to get this kind of detailed information through national case reporting, given the rapid evolution of the pandemic and the high burden on our health department partners. And so because the staff and the EIP sites are very experienced conducting active surveillance across a wide variety of healthcare settings, including hospitals and nursing homes, and also because they have a lot of expertise doing detailed and complex data collection, including through interviews, we felt it was a really good opportunity for the network to contribute to a better understanding of SARS-CoV-2 in the healthcare workforce. All right. So then how did you go about trying to get this information with the EIP team? Sure. So we worked with all of the EIP sites to implement surveillance. So there are 10 EIP sites. They're located in California, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Maryland, Minnesota, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, and Tennessee. And the sites took slightly different approaches to this effort, depending on what they thought would work best in their areas. We had most of the sites doing surveillance in selected healthcare facilities within their catchment areas, 
We had a couple of sites that opted to conduct population-based surveillance, and then one site that used a hybrid approach, working with selected hospitals in their area, but then doing population-based surveillance for SARS-CoV-2 infections in nursing home personnel. And the EIP site staff went about obtaining line lists of SARS-CoV-2 test results from those facilities that they were working with, or in some cases from the state health department. And then they would contact healthcare personnel who had positive viral test results and talk with them about conducting an interview. And this work began in April of 2020. Uh, most of the sites actually launched the surveillance in May 2020. And then this particular paper includes data that were reported um, to CDC by the sites through mid-November 2020. Great. So what did you find out? So we had a number of different findings that we can highlight. So we saw a lot of differences in the activities and the practices of healthcare personnel that were based in nursing homes as compared to those that were primarily working in hospitals. So I'll just give a little bit of the overall summary of the numbers and things like that. So we were able to include 2,625 healthcare personnel who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Almost half of these were from hospitals, so about 1,225 healthcare personnel from 127 different hospitals. 604 uh, were from nursing homes. We had 145 nursing homes represented. And then the remaining um, 789 were from other types of facilities, and we had uh, seven healthcare personnel that did not report their facility type. We did have some healthcare personnel working in assisted living facilities, but we opted to include those in the other facility group and didn't analyze them separately. In terms of underlying conditions and demographics, the nursing home healthcare personnel were more likely than the hospital healthcare personnel to report their race and ethnicity as either non-Hispanic, Black, or Asian, or Hispanic, or Latino. The nursing home healthcare personnel are also more likely to have report having underlying conditions. About 72% of the nursing home healthcare workers, as compared to about 67% of the hospital workers. And then finally, and not surprisingly, a higher percentage of the nursing home healthcare personnel reported that they were nursing assistants or patient care technicians, about 39% compared to 9% of the hospital healthcare personnel. So we looked at, as I mentioned, the activities and practices both inside and outside the healthcare facility workplace as reported by these healthcare personnel. And we focused specifically on the 14 days before or on the day of their SARS-CoV-2 infection onset, which was either defined by symptom onset or by the date of their test. And generally speaking, the healthcare personnel that worked in the hospital seemed to have more community-associated risk factors for infection, whereas the healthcare personnel working in nursing homes seemed to have more workplace-associated risk factors. So, for example, in the workplace, nursing home healthcare personnel more frequently reported having close contact uh, with patients or residents with COVID-19. They also reported having more close contact with coworkers or visitors who had COVID-19. And then in contrast, a lower percentage of the nursing home healthcare personnel reported that they always used certain elements of PPE when taking care of patients or residents with COVID-19 than the hospital personnel. And that included masks or respirators, gowns, and eye protection. 
One other point to report as well is that when we asked about taking care of patients or residents with COVID-19 who had source control in place, nursing home healthcare personnel less frequently reported caring for residents that have that source control in place when compared with hospital personnel taking care of patients. When we looked at factors outside the workplace, um, again, we kind of found that the hospital personnel reported more of these potential risk factors. So they were more likely to report having close contact with family members who had COVID-19. They were more likely to say that they had attended mass gatherings or gatherings that included people other than their household members. And they were significantly more likely to report traveling either domestically or internationally. So I think overall, these findings really emphasize the diversity of the healthcare workforce in the United States. And I think they suggest that it's important that we recognize that workplace and community factors that affect that risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection may differentially impact healthcare personnel that work in different settings. And this may be important in delivering effective public health messaging. No, that's great. Thanks for that summary. And I think when you were talking about some of those workplace contacts and practices and the differences between the healthcare personnel and hospitals versus the nursing homes, it really, I think, went back and kind of tied in nicely with perhaps some of the things that Helena and Wenhan were talking about in terms of the possibility of having fewer resources and supplies and education and training in those nursing homes as compared to hospitals. So are there any limitations or caveats with this study that we should be aware of as we're kind of interpreting what you report? Yes, definitely. So one important limitation that we mentioned in the paper is that the geographic coverage of the project was restricted to these selected areas or specific facilities within the 10 EIP site. So that means that the results are likely not generalizable to the overall U.S. healthcare workforce. So that's important to keep in mind. Also, participation by the healthcare personnel working in specific settings wasn't proportionate across the sites. So that could mean that the differences that we found between healthcare personnel working in different settings might be due to other factors, such as geographic differences in the the healthcare workforce. And then a third important limitation is that we did conduct these interviews days or weeks after the healthcare personnel experienced their SARS-CoV-2 infection, and that could have affected their ability to accurately report information about their activities and, and exposures around the time of their illness. Again, as I read these three papers before and again today, as I heard you speak about them, I was struck by how complementary the findings of these studies are to each other. They all seem to highlight how systemic inequities in community resources, facility-specific resources, and even individual resources that seem to track along lines of race and ethnicity lead to disparities in COVID-19-related outcomes among healthcare facilities as well as the people working in and seeking care in those facilities. And I do think one thing we should note is that all three of these studies we talked about were based on data collected relatively early in the COVID-19 pandemic. It's now two years later, we have vaccines, and many of those initial supply chain issues related to PPE have, for the most part, improved. So do we know if anything has changed over time with regard to those disparities that we've seen, or are we still seeing the same type of disparities in our long-term care facilities? I really doubt that if we did this these studies again today that we would find big changes. Maybe that's a pessimist speaking for me, but maybe it's a realist. I think that you know what we are seeing 
the disparities that we're seeing across nursing homes have been there for a very long time. And they are, they haven't gone away with many of the policies that are being implemented. In fact, some of these policies are just exacerbating the disparities. It's not to say that the policy shouldn't be passed, but there is little attention being paid to how certain policies affect poorer facilities. And I think we need to start paying more attention to that. With regard to assisted living, I think you know we have a sh- much shorter history of really studying these communities. But I think that the difference, the disparities that we are seeing are largely among duals and Medicare only. And that this also sort of reflects the state's hesitancy to really invest themselves in these communities. So the states are in their effort to rebalance long-term care, meaning moving from people from institutional settings to community settings and assisted living are a community setting. The states want to do that, but they aren't really 100% fully committed to doing that. And if they are going to do it, they need to pay attention to these poorer assisted living into which duels are typically going. So what role do you think vaccination plays in our efforts to reduce some of these disparities uh, related to COVID in long-term care facilities? The vaccine uptake has been much better for the residents, where we see, you know, kind of uh, uptake of the primary series in the into 99%, the lower of 75%, and uptake of booster as well to be very high. The uptake by nursing staff is, you know, for the primary series is still very good, but the lowest is in the 75%. But the booster uptake by the staff of uh, the nursing home is quite low. You know, some states have only 35% of nursing home staff that have been uh, have been boosted. It is important, and I think it's more important to vaccinate the staff than the resident because they are the one probably at risk of infection and they are the one that bring it to the facility. And now that it's open, it's, it might be being brought by a visitor and so forth. But immunizing staff is key to preventing respiratory outbreak. And we see we know it from other viruses such as influenza. I think the impact of the vaccine on the nursing home has been very positive and we need to, you know, make sure that we address, you know, some of the hesitancy of the vaccination by the staff that is more minority and immigrant. And just to point out, which I'm sure everyone is aware of, but both CMS and CDC's NHSN provide those data to the public. So, you know, to be able to look at what's happening with vaccination rates, both the nursing home residents and healthcare personnel you know, including rates of additional or booster doses, those are available online. So you can check the progress. So Rinwan Shelley, what do we know about any changes in risk for COVID-19 infection among healthcare personnel? Do we have any more recent data for that? We haven't really analyzed our data yet beyond what has been reported. I think there have been There is a lot of change that has taken place since the start of the pandemic. A lot of support has gone to the nursing homes and assisted living, uh, health department, academic centers, a lot of teaching. And maybe Shelley can give you more detail about the project first line that is educating non-medical staff at this facility about infection control. So a lot, you know, I think we have done a lot to try to assist the nursing homes 
But the reality right now, what I have seen, and I'm going to speak more about my experience being in upstate New York, is that the nursing homes are struggling because of a decrease, you know, in a movement of patients that are post-op for the post-acute, you know, acute care for rehab, which is funded by Medicare. They have lost a lot of income. And because of staffing issues, you know, there was a big exodus at the beginning with no real recovery of staffing. So they are limited on how many patients they can take from the hospital or the community, which is really hurting them as well. So what I think we should pay attention to is really the workforce in the nursing home and assisted living. And as you can see from our paper, the majority of staff that works in, in this facility are minorities. There's a lot of immigrant population and they make minimum wage. They don't have also sick leave. So many, you know, has no option when they are sick and they tend to be single mother with young children. And I think what we have to try to do is try to make working in these facility more, you know, kind of more interesting and get people to focus on it because we are all aging. One of us is going to end up in a nursing home. And so we have to figure out how can we get the nursing staff to be, you know, kind of interested in working in nursing home. How can we support them? How can we pay them more? Right now, they make minimum wage. It's probably more beneficial to work in a fast food restaurant than to work in a nursing home. And turnover is very high. So if you're going to educate someone on infection control and the turnover is more than 50%, you know, how do you keep up educating and re-educating those people? So I think beyond kind of resources, include resources such as staff, and we really need to kind of find solution to have more staff and pay them better and make sure they stay and there is kind of advancement. When you are a certified nurse assistant, there's no way for you to go up. You're going to remain the way you are. So I think a lot of support has happened but still, we have some challenges. Shell, did you want to add anything? Sure. You know, with respect to risk factors for infection and healthcare personnel and additional work that we're doing. So our surveillance for SARS-CoV-2 infections and healthcare personnel actually continued through the end of 2021. So there are additional data that we'll be looking at. The EIP sites have worked to describe socioeconomic factors that may contribute to the risk of healthcare personnel acquiring SARS-CoV-2 infection, looking at measures of social vulnerability in the communities in which those healthcare personnel live. That work is ongoing. We did publish a case control analysis. So as part of the surveillance, some of the sites also conducted interviews with healthcare personnel who tested negative for SARS-CoV-2 infection. And the findings in that particular analysis showed that exposures both in the workplace and in the community were risk factors for infection, although the strength of the association was greater for community exposures. And that's something that's been shown by a lot of other investigators in a variety of studies that probably the community factors play a, a large role. We also found that among healthcare personnel who are caring for COVID patients, those who helped COVID patients with activities of daily living were perhaps particularly more at risk. And so protecting healthcare personnel may require interventions that reduce exposures outside the workplace and improve the healthcare personnel ability to assist those COVID patients or residents with their activities of daily living more safely. 
In terms of, you know, whether we've seen changes over time, you know, as Renoir said, there's been obviously a lot of work on the part of federal and non-federal partners to improve access of nursing homes and nursing home personnel to resources, equipment, and education that are needed for effective infection prevention and control to keep residents and to keep themselves safe. Agencies like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, health departments, professional organizations, and industry have all played a role in providing the support. But as others have said, obviously, in terms of disparities, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We know that social determinants of health are closely tied to the risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, as well as other infections, and contribute to disparities in health outcomes. And CDC has an agency-wide strategy, which is known as the CORE Initiative, to increase equity across public health. Within our division at CDC, we are continuing to look at how best to assess facilities, residents, and healthcare personnel and figure out how well some of the available metrics do in identifying facilities that and residents and healthcare personnel that may be at higher risk and need more support. And in terms of addressing disparities, we do have some goals, such as expanding disparities and equity-focused data collection, supporting infection control and patient safety efforts, um, including support to states to address disparities, addressing educational needs that impact the diversity of frontline healthcare providers and their ability to protect themselves and protect their patients. And then also focusing on strategies that address disparities in the quality of care in these long-term care facilities, as others have alluded to. There are a number of activities that, you know, I could highlight. CDC's Project First Line, for example, has been launched during the pandemic, and that's a training collaborative for healthcare infection control that really intends to provide an equity of understanding for all healthcare providers across a number of different roles and facility types. So that is something that provides resources for more education. And then, you know, our division has also, of course, continued to work with and through health departments to help nursing home facilities increase staffing capacity and increase their ability to support and assess nursing homes and help them with infection prevention and control activities. So we always end the podcast by asking each participant to give listeners one action item that they can take away from the podcast. So today I'm going to ask each of you, where do we go from here? What can someone do to help address and eliminate the inequities and disparities affecting the residents and personnel of our long-term care facilities? So Wenhan, maybe I'll start with you. Thank you. So actually, I think one takeaway point I want to address is that assisted living communities, along with some other types of long-term care facilities, also needs more attention under this pandemic, just like nursing home. Actually, a lot of the states that we included in our study have even stopped updating the COVID-19 data in these long-term care facilities. So I really wish there would be more data available and information available to inform the healthcare delivery and the policy intervention under these settings. Okay, great. Helena, how about you? Well, that's a difficult question, and I think there's no simple answer. I think that there is sort of a gaping hole between in communities where you have large hospitals that serve 
and connect to many long-term care facilities, including nursing homes. And it's it's really that thought stuck with me when Renoir was talking about sort of the need to support nursing home facilities as well as assisted living. And I think that hospitals can and should for their own benefit, be doing a better job. Actually, Renoir and I are co-authors of another paper that was published recently in which we show that hospitals that serve many nursing homes are at a higher risk of readmissions, which dings them financially. And I think the same probably works with COVID, is that those hospitals are at a higher risk of covid admissions and perhaps COVID death. And so it would be, we are all connected basically, and it would behoove those hospitals to act in their own interest by reaching out more into the, into these long-term care communities, providing teaching and connecting them maybe to workforce in, in many, many other ways that would be beneficial, I think, to both the hospital community and the residential long-term care. Great. Thank you. Renoir. Yeah, I can add to Helena's comments. I think what happened at the beginning, which really no one paid attention to, is the nursing home were not at the table when we were doing the planning for emergency. And so we need to change and we need to have the post-acute and long-term care a key player or at the table with any emergency preparedness or pandemic preparedness. And so that kind of was obvious, a big need. And we need to really, our infection, infectious disease community also need to pay more attention to the post-acute and long-term care, because this, this is going to be a big proportion of whom we're going to be taking care of in the future. Okay, Shelley, what do you think? Thanks. I have a few things to say. I'll try not to go too long. And first, I want to thank Kara Jacobs-Slifka, who is the long-term care team lead in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. She's given me her thoughts on this, so I just want to thank her for her input. So to kind of echo what Rimwa said, I think very importantly, policymakers, community planners, public health professionals should include nursing homes in any of their healthcare planning, including emergency preparedness, vaccine education efforts. They do need to have a seat at the table to bring that voice and reflect the, the needs of their residents and workers. And then secondly, we need researchers who are thinking about health disparities and emergency preparedness and planning to think about the unique complexities of nursing homes so that we can further our understanding of disparities among healthcare personnel and residents in these settings and work effectively to eliminate those disparities. Third, it's important that we engage owners of nursing homes and leadership of nursing homes in efforts to eliminate disparities, also to improve infection prevention and control and protect resident and healthcare personnel safety. There are a lot of challenges that they're facing right now, but their support of their employees and residents is very powerful. And lastly, and related to that third point, it's critical to address healthcare personnel burnout to support the physical and emotional well-being of frontline providers and bolster the resiliency of the healthcare workforce and long-term care. Great. I think those are great suggestions and topics. So to kind of summarize, I think I heard a lot of need for more data, more research, for collaboration and inclusion in our preparedness activities, and then engagement with these facilities, their leadership, and their personnel. 
So again, I want to thank all of you for joining me today and for investigating and calling attention to some of these systemic inequities that impact our ability to prevent and control infection within our healthcare facilities, particularly our long-term care facilities. I suspect you've inspired many of our listeners to action today, and I'll take this as an opportunity to remind our listeners that Itchy now has an active call for papers that address topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare epidemiology, infection prevention and control, and antimicrobial stewardship. We're inviting submission of original articles, concise communications, and research briefs that seek to identify, understand, and eliminate disparities in health outcomes, healthcare practices, and opportunities that arise from demographic factors, structural racism, and socially determined circumstances. For more information about this call for papers and to see Itchy's featured collection of diversity, equity, and inclusion-related papers, please visit the Itchy website. I also want to thank our producers, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 